Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. This is Genesis 32, starting in verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and have stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, and the flocks and the herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please, Deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When my Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third, and all who follow the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. So there's a, a shift this morning in our narrative from Jacob's years with Laban, right? He spent these 20-some years, he says, with Laban and, and, and Padam Aram and this other location where his mother, Rebecca, her hometown. And, and now there's a shift. He's going back home. He's going to go back 
to be with his in the same region that his brother Esau is. And the question begins to immediately foment in your mind, begins to form in your mind, what is it going to be like between him and his brother Esau? Worrying about it being a good greeting is certainly warranted. Esau, Jacob has good reason to think, how is it going to go when I get back home where God has told me to go and meet my brother Esau? And why is that a good question? Well, let's remember together how it came about that Jacob even left, right? So Jacob was born, right, grasping the heel of Esau. He, he comes out, he's a heel grabber, a supplanter. He's in his name, Jacob, has familiarity with, with that idea of trickster. He's going to trip up his brother Esau. And so on two occasions in Jacob's life, he has put effort to trick Esau or to, to get the birthright and the blessing away from his brother Esau. The first time, right, Esau comes in starving and Jacob has made a beautiful, delicious smelling, I guess, lots of garlic probably. I don't know. I doubt it. But lots of something to make this soup very delicious smelling. And Esau is starving, famished. And Jacob says, I'll give you a bowl of red stew if you sell me your birthright. And Jacob and Esau says, what good is that if I die anyway? So it's all yours. Give me the bowl of red soup. And he sells his birthright. And, and Jacob tricks in a very scheming way, finding his brother at the right time, the birthright from his brother. But the second is even more disturbing, right? That's the first instance of deception. The second instance is where Esau has been told by his father Isaac, go and get me some wild game and come back and I'm going to bless you. A very important moment in the, in the, in the passing on of the, the, the lineage, the family line, the blessing to the child is this moment that Isaac tries to set up between himself and Esau. And Rebekah, Jacob's mother, who favored uh, Jacob, disguises Jacob as Esau. Esau being a hairy man, he, uh, they take goat skins and they cover Jacob with goat skins and, and he puts on Esau's clothes and they cook the meal that Isaac likes and they go and Jacob pretends like it's Halloween. He dresses up and goes and says to his father, I in fact am Esau, give me your blessing. And, and Isaac falls for it and he lays and he blesses Jacob, not Esau. And when Esau hears about it, he's not as happy, he's not as satisfied as the first time. In fact, he says, I want to kill my brother, right? And this is the whole reason that Jacob has left Canaan. He's left this land, his hometown, and gone to be with Rebekah's father, Laban, because Esau wanted to murder him. And not in the way that like, you know, when siblings fight, I'm going to kill you sort of thing. Like, no, like he honestly, he wanted to rid uh, the world of his brother, Jacob. So he flees. Jacob escapes to Rebekah's hometown and begins to work for Laban. He marries two of his daughters, right? Leah and Rachel and their concubines and that whole mess that Evan went through for us. Uh, that, that occurs in this 20 year span, Jacob says it has been. 20 years he stays with Laban. Now then in verse 2 of chapter 31, Jacob hears it's time to go back home. He was actually supposed to be hearing from his mother at some point. Rebekah said, I'll send for you. 
um, when it's time to come back. But Rebecca has evidently died and she's not able to send this. Her, she never sees her favorite son again. It's a tragic story of for her trying to save her son. And she actually sends him away and never sees him again. But instead, God, Jacob hears from the Lord that he should return to his family. And so he gathers up his wives, all of his servants, all of his camels, all of his sheep, all of his goats, all of his livestock, all of his wives and his servants, and they head back home, right? And that's the story that, that uh, Jim covered for us last week of Laban chases him down. And they, they make a peace treaty. And so it ends up going fine with Laban. They, they, they depart peacefully. They set up this altar. They have a peace treaty between them. And you go your way and I'll go mine. Laban isn't so happy about it because at the, you read there at the last verse, early in the morning of, of chapter 31, early in the morning Laban rose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters. He doesn't go say nothing to Jacob, and then he heads home. All right, this is just that maybe you're familiar with these family outings. You know, you say bye to some, some of them, and some of them you just walk away from. I don't know. That's what's happening here. So he just walks away. So he survives the escape from Laban. But the question remains, will he survive the reunion with Esau? And he has good reason to think this may not go well. <laughs> I, I, had, I stole everything from my brother. I deceived my father. I deceived and lied about my brother and took his blessing and his birthright and ran away. What will Esau do when he hears that his deceiving brother is heading back to town? What will he do? The last thing he heard was that he's trying to kill him. So that's where our narrative starts this morning. Laban has left, and Jacob continues on heading home. Now, just as a side, and I, and I say it as an aside because it's really kind of a weird aside in the text. These first two verses, angels appear again to Jacob. And there's two places, right? Uh, um, City light guy, uh, Tyler, Mass, that's I'm like, like blanking. Tyler, he preached on uh, the Jacob's Ladder, uh, not the Huey and the Lewis song, uh, Huey Lewis and the New Song, but Jacob's Ladder, that he falls asleep, huh? Is that? <laughs> okay, thank you, I thought so too. Nobody got it, but there's a song, Jacob's, anyway. <laughs> so he lays his head on a rock and he has this dream and there's, the, there's, these, uh, there's this host that is there. And that's as he's leaving and now as he's returning home again, this, this camp of angels, this, this group of angels meet him. And there's, it's this way this is laid out. It's, it's only referenced the angels, plural. Angels of the Lord is only here and in the Bethel experience. And so something happens here that Jacob has this vision of these angels of the Lord. And so I just want to take a moment and talk about, we don't have a lot of occasion. Angels aren't mentioned a ton in scripture, but they are there. So just as an aside, just a few things to see here about these angels. The only other place that this is referenced is in the vision of the ladder at Bethel. And that's in chapter 28, verse 12. Um, it's similar possible to the vision of, um, there's a, a crazy story in 2 Kings chapter 6 where Elisha and his servant, they are, they are caught in a city and all of the enemies have surrounded the city to destroy them, to kill the prophet. And the servant of Elisha is worried that they're going to they're gonna take us, that they're, they're far outnumbered us. We're in big trouble. And Elisha prays for his servant's eyes to be opened. And as he looks up and he sees this 
heavenly army of some sorts, I think they're angels, surrounding the city that far outnumber the host that is there with them. And Elisha says to his servant to fear not, basically, not, that's not a direct quote, but there are more are those who are with us than are against us. And he references this angelic host, this supernatural spiritual beings that are working on behalf of God's people. And that is a real thing in Scripture. Is, are the, this reality of these supernatural beings that, that work on behalf of God for His people and to oppose those who are, who are against Him. We're not sure if this is a dream, a vision, or just viewed naturally, if His eyes are open somehow to, in the natural, see these angels, but we are clearly told that He sees them. So just, again, as an aside, what can we do with this? understand that there is such a thing. There are such beings as angels. They are created beings that do exist in a spiritual realm. They don't have corporeal existence. They don't have bodies like we do. They are a different type of God's creation. We are made in the image and likeness of God, a, 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 a connection of soul and spirit and body, and we, we are a, a connection of the natural and the spiritual. But these angels are spiritual beings. They're created by God at some point. And we don't really have a ton of backstory on where they come from. Except that we know everything is made by Him. Therefore, angels are made by God. They are not what we become when we die. They are, they are a separate creature. So it isn't, we do not die and become angels and then come back and help our loved ones from back here on earth. That, that is not the way the Bible talks about them. They are distinct creatures made by God. But they are recognizable personalities. Like they aren't just some nebulous blob of like, I don't know, spiritual matter floating around. They are recognizable personalities. Jacob views them and it's an army, a host, the angels, plural, he knows there's more than one of them, of the Lord. Um, they do the bidding of God to aid and assist his people and to oppose their enemies. Um, my daughter likes to put window clings up on the windows for Christmas and so like you can't see out any of the windows in our house right now because they're all covered with uh, plastic of different pictures and they went out and bought one and it was a manger scene, and Mary and Joseph are little people, and okay. And then there's the little chubby angels, like babies. I'm like, we can't put those up. Like, sorry. Those, those, we can put the rest of the stuff up, the joy of the world, the peace on earth. But angels are not chubby babies with wings flying around with bow and arrow trying to make people love other people. That's not, that's not what angels are. They are mighty warriors. This is this angels of God. And they are there to give real assistance you know, he talks about Jesus and the temptation. I'm going on longer this than I meant to. Gosh dang it. This is, this is an aside. I got I to gotta move. <laughs> this is an aside. But Jesus, after his temptation, you know, he spends the, the he, after he gets baptized, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days and he fasts. And, and there's the temptation show up. And it says the angels come and they minister to him. They're there to help God's people. And that's important because we, ultimately, if he, as Ephesians 6 tells us, this battle that we are in is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities and forces of darkness in the world. And there is aid from God, spiritual aid through the angels even. So there's, it's a really fun, interesting doctrine to get into. That was a, a really long aside. Okay, so now into the rest of the text. And we're going we're to move here, hopefully. 
So after this vision, Jacob then continues on his trip. He sends messengers to Esau. Hey, see what he's doing? Let him know I'm coming. And what happens? Uh, evidently, the herd it through the grapevine goes really fast in this area because Esau's already heard <laughs> Jacob's on his way, and he's got a team of 400 men coming to meet him. 400 men. Now, if you remember the story of Abraham, when he goes to defeat these multiple kings with Lot, he takes 300-some men with him to go kill all of these kings that are stolen, have taken Lot. An army larger than that is coming with Esau to meet Jacob. That's not comforting news. Like, that's a really big welcome party or people who are coming to, like, do not nice things to you. And that's what, that's what Jacob ends up with. And so Jacob, when he hears this, he makes camps, similar to the naming of, of Manahem. He makes two camps of his people. He splits his group into two groupings, thinking that if Esau shows up and kills one group, maybe one group can still escape. But more importantly than that, he goes to prayer. Now, we have been without a lot of good examples um, to emulate for several weeks now in Genesis, pretty much we're always saying, uh, you know, Evan used the line, this is, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. Like when going and getting the multiple wives and the mandrakes and all that stuff, this is a description of what happened. It isn't saying do this. It's just saying here's what happened. We, we haven't had a lot of, of, of behavior to emulate or to follow in Genesis. Jacob's life has produced many actions that you can really only say, yeah, that's a, that's a don't do that. That's <laughs> not supposed to be like that. That's what his life has produced a lot of. But here we see Jacob with action to take note of. Jacob does something right. He's, there's a corner that's being turned here. And what is right about Jacob's prayer? He goes to prayer in the middle of being afraid, not knowing what's going to happen. He turns to his God in prayer. And I think this is a prayer worth emulating. Just to, to break down the prayer into four quick points, Jacob prays with a proper approach. He says, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. Abraham, or Jacob has a proper approach to his God when he prays. He knows who his God is. He's not praying to the great mystery. He's not praying to God if you're there. He's praying to know the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, we would pray later, the God of Jacob. We would pray to this known God, the one true God, creator of heaven and earth. You can read through the Psalms as prayers and they're constantly naming out who God is. Do we know the attributes and the existence, the, the who God is? That prayer begins with a right understanding of who God is and praying to him, Jesus in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He has this understanding. He addresses who God is. He, Jacob comes with a right approach. But secondly, Jacob comes with a humility of spirit. Jacob not only knows who God is, he knows who he is. And Jacob says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. He does not come high-handed. God, you owe me. God, this is what you should do for me. He comes with the realization, God, you are great, high, and mighty, and I am humbled before you. It doesn't that he thinks 
thinks poorly of himself so much as he doesn't, he's not focused on himself. I haven't deserved all this attention, all this blessing that you have given me. Who am I that you would think of me? And yet God does. He's, he's astonished by this. His prayer sees who God is, sees who he is in light of who God is as one humbled before him. He is one who is not worthy. And then he pre presents this petition. God, deliver me. You can almost see kind of Jesus' Lord's prayer, his example, a prayer there of after exalting God and then forgive us our trespasses, give us this day our daily bread. Here's my petition. God, deliver me from the hand of my brother. And then lastly in verse 12, I think this is really important, he gives the basis for his request. God, I, I pray this because you said... You said, here's a promise, God, that you have given me. And so my prayer is not just based upon some hope or something I'd like to have happen. But God, this is what you've actually promised me in your word. This is what you have spoken to me. And so it's really a model prayer. I think you can take that and, and really dive deeper into just all of the implications of knowing who God is when you pray. Knowing who you are as one humbled before him when you pray making your petitions, and then remembering the word of God, his promises to you, and how those apply to your situation. So Jacob then continues. He makes this prayer. Esau's coming. He splits into the two camps. He makes this prayer. And then Jacob continues to do all that he can think to do to, to produce what he has been promised by God. He devises this plan to send an abundance of gifts to Esau, hoping to curry Esau's favor before they meet. Now, some people view, and some commentators, they'll, they view Jacob's gifts to Esau as Jacob's, like, unbelief. And they say, well, see, he prayed this prayer, but he still doesn't think God's going to do anything for him because look at him trying to bribe Esau. And they, they put it in a real negative light that Jacob is doing this, that but can I, just to state what I think is obvious, can't, can't both things be true at the same time? Can't Jacob have this legitimate fear of what Esau might do and trust in God? And so he does, he trusts God and does all that he can at the same time. Can't both of those things be in existence? That you're trusting God, that he will work whatever his good purposes are, and that you also do all that you can, that God might channel his grace through you and accomplish his purposes through maybe your good efforts? And I would argue that, that this must, they, they must exist at the same time. It is not that, and could it even be, that Jacob um, is trusting God while at the same time living with legitimate fears. Are those always divorced? Is it, is it always you're either afraid of what might happen or else you're trusting God? Are they always divorced, separated, never the two shall mix? I don't think so. I, I think that in fact, in order for real faith to be existing, some level of fear has to be there or else it's not really trusting God. It's just ignorance or whatever you may say. It's just, it's just oblivious uh, to the reality of what might happen. But when fear is really there and there's a real possibility that's not going well, that's actually the environment for real faith to be expressed. 
Because in the midst of these fears, I'm trusting God. I'm working for it and trusting God and confessing, God, yeah, there's, there's some real fear here of what might happen. So he does what he can think of to push the result that he desires. And, and whatever he thinks would help achieve the purposes of God down the road. One commentator says that scripture approves of strategy when it is a tool rather than a substitute for God. He's not trying to replace God in, in, the, in the working with this tool, but he's, it's a strategy. It's, it's not a substitute. It's a tool. There's a healthy cooperation between the divinely ordained purposes of God and the providential means by which he accomplishes those purposes. There's a healthy cooperation. God's divinely ordained purposes and the means by which he accomplishes them. For instance, pray for your kids. This is a really toxic, tough environment that, um, that our culture, our world is in. Maybe it hasn't been changed all that much, whatever, but looking at it now, this is a tough environment. Pray for your kids. Trust God that he will draw them to himself and work like crazy at pointing them towards Jesus. <laughs> Can't both of them be done at the same time? It is not just, oh, there's no fear, so I'm just going to pray and trust God and he'll do it. But there's the, the healthy fear of, of, of someone not following Jesus, of, of heading to their own damnation and their own trouble, their own, their own uh, ruin, that there's a fear there that motivates you to, to trust God, to pray to Him, and to work like crazy that, that God's good purposes might work in their life. When you think about your marriage, pray for your spouse. Pray for your marriage. Trust God that what He has brought together, He will work for His good purposes in the world. And then husbands, wives, get to work. Conversations with your wife, with your husband. How are things going? Pray together, read scripture together, whatever it may be. Take legitimate interest in one another and, and, and talk through these things. Pray and trust God, but out of fear of this thing falling apart, a healthy level of fear, I pray, God, I need your help in this thing. I, I, we need your, your Holy Spirit to, to work among us. And God, I want to... Help me to be faithful to work at this thing with the energy that you have given me. And we could go on and on. When we think about the mission in Mount Air, we think about our neighbors who don't know Jesus. Please pray for your neighbors. <laughs> Out of fear that there are many who do not know Jesus and will, will die and go to hell. Um, will face the judgment of God outside of the protection of the blood of Jesus. And that's a terrible place to find yourself. Pray for your neighbor. Have your heart broken for your neighbor. Trust God that he'll work their purposes. And yeah, get to work talking to your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your loved ones. Engage them with your energy as well that God's purposes might be done. So now what do we do with all of this? Um, people, as they walk through the life of Jacob, we're always asking this question, when does, is Jacob saved? Like, what is wrong with this guy? Does he know God? He's making, he's, he's making so many bad choices. There's so much sin going on. He's in fear. When is Jacob actually going to get it right? Is he ever, is he ever, is he even saved? Does he even know Yahweh? Look at how much this guy's life is messed up. Look how much this guy is in fear, making all of these, um, uh, just contingency plans for God not following through. Is Jacob 
um, really trusting God when he has such fear? And commentators go back and forth so much that I, I actually find myself irritated by the question. <laughs> Why do we continue to put Jacob through the ringer? <laughs> Jacob does not have it all figured out. But is saving faith really that simple? That you come to know Yahweh and all of a sudden you just hit it 100% of the time. You're never afraid. You never have any troubles. You never sin again. Everything's perfect. No, that's none of our experience. We have no example of that from anyone in Scripture, a save Jesus himself. And so that's not, that, that is not, saving faith is not that simple. Could it be that Jacob is in the midst of some great process? Where does his justification occur and where is his ongoing sanctification? Now, his next, this next section, which we'll get to in five weeks, six weeks, <laughs> might be a good candidate for that. But I don't, I, I don't know that it's necessarily that clean, that it's always that clean. I've titled this sermon, which I didn't tell you this, but I titled this sermon for my own head, Fears Are for Finding More of God. And I think that this is something of the heartbeat of the text. Sometimes I get annoyed at what I call, you don't have to call it this, but I call it peacock Christianity. And it's this, you know what a peacock is, right? It's, a, it's an okay-sized bird. They're fairly big. Tony's had some peacocks. They're a big bird, but they're really big when they spread their tail out, right? And they start strutting around like, boy, I'm big stuff. Aren't I the biggest thing here? But they get hit by something. They're just about the same size they always were. <laughs> they, they're just kind of full of themselves. They strut around like they're some big thing, and really they're not all, they, they kind of over, they've overcompensated, they've over, um, overconfident in, in who they are. And, and peacock Christianity is where this idea where we, we puff ourselves up and try to dress up our Christian walk as some impressive thing. You know, I, I, I'm trusting God, and I'm, you know, and we, 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 we're peacocking, we're, we're really making this a big deal, we're some impressive thing. And it's, it's a facade that, that really isn't worth anything. In this case, peacocking is trying to ratchet up your confidence in the face of fears such that you try and convince yourself you aren't really afraid. Peacock Christianity is, I'm trusting God, and so you almost overdo um, your, your faith in God and your confidence in His plan that you pretend like this doesn't really exist. And Jacob seems to sit in the middle of this where he's got these legitimate fears. Esau might come and try to take his life. And trusting God and looking and praying to him, beseeching God on behalf of his promises and, 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 and asking God for his help. You'll hear people say, you know, I'm not afraid, I have faith. Or if you're in fear, then you're not in faith. Whatever that's supposed to mean. But the problem is I just don't think that that's true. The nature of true faith is not the absence of fear it is trusting God in the midst of everything that frightens you. True faith is not the absence of fear. It is trusting God in the midst of everything that frightens you. Darla and I, when we went through uh, her cancer scare and all of that and going through surgeries and everything, the, the psalm that, um, that came up to our minds is Psalm 56.3, which says, When I am afraid, I, will tr I put my trust in you. And it wasn't this, it was so comforting us, comforting to us that the psalm writer doesn't expect the believer to never be afraid or else he wouldn't say, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. He'll say, I put my trust in you, therefore I'm never afraid. It's not what he says. He says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And there's a healthy balance in the Christian life that is not unaware of all the things that could go wrong. 
that is not unaware of all the difficulties that exist in their life. They don't turn a blind eye to reality. But in the midst of those things, we put our trust in God. The nature of true faith is not the absence of fear. It's trusting God in the midst of everything that does truly frighten you. And God, he does answer Jacob's prayer. His main petition is, God, deliver me. Deliver me. And later that night, which we'll, again we'll hear about in a few weeks, later that night, Jacob's wrestles, Jacob wrestles with God. Not Jacob's. Jacob. There is a Jacob's. <laughs> Jacob wrestles with God. He wrestles with God. And at the end of it, he says in direct echo, you can look at it at the end of 32, he says, I have wrestled with God and in my life, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered prayed for deliverance, and he got his deliverance. And what is that deliverance? The deliverance that Jacob needed was a greater understanding and closeness to his God. And the means by which God accomplished this drawing of himself closer to God, the means by which God accomplished this in Jacob's life was through the presence of his fears. If we do not admit and face those things which frighten us, we will shortcut ourselves we will shortcut ourselves the opportunity to get what is truly most important, God, more of God himself. God, and this is, listen to this. I mean, this is kind of walking a fine line here. But God, in his grace and his mercy, will sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, God will allow things that are very scary and very sad, not because he's angry with us and wants to punish us, but to draw us closer to what is of most value, to draw us to himself. And so fears are not something to be just pretend like they aren't there. They're something that in the midst of them to cause us to cling ever more tightly to our God. If we do not admit those things and face them, we will shortcut ourselves the opportunity of being drawn closer to him. It isn't because he doesn't care for us, but precisely because he does care for us and wants what is best for us, namely to be drawn closer to him. What is best for you is not to be delivered from all fears that you can imagine in this life, but what is best for us is to be drawn closer to him. You think of Paul and his thorn in 2 Corinthians 12. He's got this thorn in his body. God, would you deliver me? And, and, and God repeatedly says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. For the sake of Christ, then, Paul says, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak and trusting God, essentially, then I am strong. What fears ail you today? Don't let them be the wedges that drive you further from God but let them be the very things that cause you to cling ever more tightly to him. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful for your love, for wandering people, for a wandering person such as I am, that God, and I, I pray for each one of us in this room this morning, not knowing where we are with various difficulties and trials and struggles, but that you are a God who is not trying to create peacock Christians that just pretend like everything's big and glorious and grand, that is, that is connected to real life, that we are in a broken, sorrow-filled, sinful world. And so, God, it is, in the, it is in the presence. What makes you look glorious, God, 
It's not that we don't see these things, we don't have these trials and troubles and fears, but is that in the midst of them, we know our God has conquered the world. That the day is coming when Christ will return and make all things new. And when on that day, the word Romans 8 tells us, on that day, none who are yours will be put to shame. We will have no more fears. We will be delivered. We will live in the light of your presence and the fullness of your joy forever. And so God, may that day anchor our hopes. God, may the promises of, of an eternal future with you, God, will we draw closer and ever nearer to you through all eternity, God, may that anchor us so that when we go through this life, at times like Jacob, having real fearful things on our horizon, that God, it might draw us closer to you, the hope that we have to you and your sure and certain promises to us through Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.